So uh, here's the goal, is I would love to give a sermon that you can all remember for years and years. Uh, so we're gonna go four plus hours today. It's the second service, so. Uh, if I stay up here, then we don't have to go. So, um, no, but we, uh, we are, I'm excited to get into this this morning. The story we're talking about, uh, we're in the middle of this book of Judges. We've talked about a couple different people. We're talking about a man named Jephthah. Uh, anyone heard of his story before? Sweet. Same as last service, right? Literally no one. Yeah, so he's a not very well-known man, but I promise you at the end of this sermon, uh, you will, his story is crazy enough, you will not forget, okay? And I don't necessarily mean that in a good way. Like, what we're going to read is intense, is, is insane, and I was laughing at saying this first service because we've probably started almost every sermon through the book of Judges like this, right? Like, hey, get ready. This is going to be a wild, crazy story, and it is. Uh, we're going to learn a lot about Jephthah and what, uh, what his story can teach us when it comes to our faith in God. But here's what I'd love to do first. Uh, we don't do this every week, but we're going to read a lot of scripture, and I would love to just pray before we do that. So you bow your heads and let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you today asking that you would speak to us through your scripture, through stories of people who are both flawed, but also um, we're still used by you regardless, God. And so we just come to you as sinners and as, as flawed humans that we would recognize where we're at, but more importantly, we would turn to you. So let this story and the words on our pages as we read um, literally speak to us and challenge us in our faith with you. So we love you, God, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, like I said, we do have a lot to talk about. So we're going to, we're going to open our Bibles up this morning. We're going to get into the story of Jephthah. So if you have your Bible, you can open it. Um, or I say in youth group, because having a handheld Bible is like foreign to youth at this point, right? So I say let's scroll, all right? Let's scroll to Judges. Either one's fine. Uh, but our story picks up in Judges chapter 10. And Pastor Brandon kind of concluded the story of Gideon, who's a really well-known judge, um, last week and kind of the end of his reign. So we're in this transition period. And I'll warn you now, um, the first like 10 or so minutes of this morning, I want us to talk about that transition before we get into our judge, because there's a lot in just what Israel's doing right now. There's a lot that takes place in between these judges here. And man, it probably will apply to us more than we really realize it. So we're in Judges chapter 10. We're picking up at verse 6, and we'll read a few verses here to see kind of what's taking place in the story at this point. Verse 6 says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashereths, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. And for 18 years, they oppressed the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Ammonites. And the Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. So... If you've been here for any, like literally any message during our summer series in the book of Judges, you are probably getting tired of that phrase right there. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as I was even preparing this, I'm thinking, man, no one here wants to hear that phrase again and again. It's like, we've got it, right? We figured it out. We, we know what the problem is. We've heard this. We've seen this. We've experienced this. We're reading it again, and it's easy for us to just 
kind of read through this at this point right now. Read through this cycle and, and forget. But here's what came to my mind honestly. Is if, if, if us as readers are getting tired of it, how do we think God is feeling at this point? Right? How, how do you think God is saying, hey, we're not talking about like, for us, we can read these chapters in what, a, a few minutes here? This is years and years of history now where God's saying, you've done the same thing over and over again. And this kind of reminds me a little bit, uh, me and my wife, we have a son right now. His name is Tom. He's two and a half. Got another one on the way. But here's a picture of him. Super cute, right? Super fun little rascal right there. He's at the age where he wakes up at 100%, goes to bed at 100%. Um, and we're learning right now. He's the best. We, I love the age he's at, but as a young parent, a new parent, that first, you know, year of having an infant, you have to like adjust your sleep schedule, right? Because they're just waking up all the time and you figure that out. And then you hit this moment where you're like, finally, we got it. Like he's sleeping in through the whole night. We're done. We don't have that problem anymore. And that's not how it works, right? You guys know. And so right now he has been, gosh, for the last like couple of months, I don't even need to put a phone on my timer anymore. He wakes up on the dot almost every time at 5 a.m. every morning. And he doesn't just wake up, right, in just this nice, peaceful, like, oh, I'm so happy to be awake. Let me read a book. Like, he just starts screaming. He just cries for mom all the time. And I'm, I'm thinking through, man, this is just like Israel right here. Like, and not to compare myself here with God, right, but literally God's probably saying, I'm getting a little tired of this, you guys. I've told you what to do, right? And, of course, I can't just walk into my toddler's room and say, hey, Tom, it's time to go back to bed. Let me explain why. You're going to be tired the rest of the day. Like, I have to practice this patience with him, right? I need to guide him through this. And Israel is in kind of the same spot right now. And God probably feels the same way because, you know, as much as I would love to say, every time I hear my son crying at 5 a.m. in the morning, I think, oh, this is an opportunity to show him love, right? That's just not how it goes. There are moments where I'm like, hey, this is, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a little frustrated. I'm tired. It's been a long week. And so there's just this cool connection here, though, honestly, for us to see, okay, let's be real here. This is where God is at. Right? And God's way more, he's perfect compared to any of us. But that is the feeling that God is most likely experiencing at this point, right? Okay, hey, I'm, I'm getting a little tired of you guys not learning from your mistakes. There's actually seven, in, in verse six and seven, there's seven different gods that Israel's worshiping at this point. So we list seven different off, and, and in the Hebrew kind of culture and literature, seven means whole and completion. So Israel is not just abandoning God, they've completely abandoned him. They're entirely, they're holistically saying, God, we have forgotten about you, and we're here to worship these other gods. And what happens to them. God sells them over to their idols. Right? This is the struggle. This is the theme of the book of Judges is idolatry, and Israel has still yet to figure this out. And so God's hurt. He's frustrated. He's saying, why can't you worship me? We'll see this in a sec, but why can't you worship me? And so if you're not going to worship me, then I'll give you over to the things you are worshiping. Uh, Timothy Keller says it well in his commentary on, on this chapter. He says, God, or he, let the things that they had been serving actually begin to dominate them and to own them. 
And I feel like this is kind of the irony of idolatry here is we would maybe say up front, hey, I don't have idols. I don't have things that I like literally worship. Um, But we do have things that we spend a lot of time doing, things that we love, things that we're willing to sacrifice other things for. And this is the irony is the things we love most are usually the things that end up ruling us most, even if we don't realize it. Hey, if you love sports more than anything else, that's going to rule your life. Like, it's going to take up your time. It's going to take up your energy. You're going to be willing to sacrifice other things. If you love the fact that food brings you comfort, right, that can become an idol in your life. I would even say we live in a place where creation can become an idol, right? Like, there's probably people here right now who are enjoying creation, and that can become an idol at times. And so we have to be careful And we have to recognize, man, what are those idols in our life? And in fact, I want to ask you guys that question today. And I know we've talked about idolatry in this series a lot, so I want to not dive too deep into this. But I would say, I mean, if, if this repeats as often as it does for Israel, it's going to repeat for us too. So we need to ask the question, what things are you continuing to idolize? Like, What things are coming back? You know, sometimes we go through a season or a phase where, hey, I love doing this, and I realized what I did, so let's put it off to the side, I'm done. But there are things that come back, and we need to recognize what those things are. We live in a place where idol worship, honestly, is all over the place. And this is not a new theory, right? Like We can even read in Romans, Paul talks about this. He says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal gods for image, excuse me, for God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And so therefore God gave them over, just like we read in the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. It's too easy for us to sweep this topic under the rug every now and then, right? It's too easy for us to to justify the things we love and say, maybe I'll bring those into God instead of making God everything. And here's here's the summary of this. Here's what I'm getting at. And we're going to see this theme return again in just a little bit. But God takes our worship seriously. (laughs) And so... We can't just read through a section like this and say, man, Israel's really just, they're struggling with the idol thing again. We're going to see here in a sec, if we struggle with that, there's repercussions for us as well. And God will, he'll, he'll deal with us the way we need to be dealt with. And so let's see what happens. Verses, verses 10, we'll, we'll continue in our story here. Verses 10, uh, it says, Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And the Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mayanites oppressed you, he's like, hey, you want to talk about this? Let's let's bring the list out here, okay? When they oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen and let them save you when you are in trouble. (laughs) God's getting a little harsh here, right? God says, hey, listen, I've given you time and time again. I mean, we could maybe equate this, right, back to me and my son. Like, hey, Tom, eventually, like, I'm going to have to let you cry this out a little bit so you can figure out 
I, I can't come in and do this all the time. You've got to learn. Like, you've got to figure this process out. And God says, okay, if you love these idols as much as you do, if they bring you as much comfort and joy and security, then why don't you go ahead and see what happens when you continue to do that? And really, the sad part here is Israel's, they're not even coming to God saying, God, we, we want you. They're saying, God, we want you to fix our problems. <laughs> we want you to get us out of trouble. And that gets really dangerous when it comes to our relationship with God is, hey, God, I did something wrong, so can you help me not feel guilty about it anymore? Or I made a mistake, so can you fix the mistake for me? That's not true change, right? It's a start. It's where we want to get to. But here's the issue that Israel's facing right now is no matter how great your idol is, it can never save you the way God does. And we, we forget that a lot. We choose to say, man, I know how good this temptation or this idol is, and so I'm going to turn to that time and time again, and then I'll wait to use God the way I want to use him. It's, it, it can't work that way. It's got to be the other way around. So God says, hey, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to give you over to your idols. I can't save you anymore if you're not going to come to me with a, with a true heart. So we see a change that takes place literally a verse later. Verse 15 picks up here and it says, But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. And then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could not bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. So, what's the change here? Like, God changes, right? He, he doesn't change per se, but he now accepts what they're doing, what Israel's asking of the Lord. And here's, here's what happens. We finally see this God of love and mercy, and what's the difference between these two? Because Israel, twice now, they've come to God for help. The first time, they said, we're in trouble. Can you get us out of trouble? The second time, they say, hey, we've... We know what we're doing. We, we realize what we've done. So now will you help us experience you? And this concept is really simple. It's one we hear in church all the time, but it's this word called repentance. Like Israel repented. We've seen this happen time and time again, but we, as human beings, forget what this process looks like. The Israelites show us, right? They explain to us, hey, here's how we repent. Here's what this looks like. We're gonna acknowledge, one, what our sin is, and then, I love this picture and imagery too, then we're going to literally throw them away. <laughs> and we're gonna take our idols and we're gonna throw it out of the house. Like it's not gonna have any room to hang on or we're not gonna forget about it or just say we'll stop worshiping it but we'll keep it here. That's the difference between true repentance. Again, Timothy Keller, he says it really well here saying repentance gets beneath the surface. It doesn't just focus on the behavior but it focuses on the motives. And so, you know, I asked the question just a moment ago, what idols are you continually idolizing? What things in your life are you continually to idolize? Like, to get rid of those, it has to be an act of true repentance. You can't let them hang around for a little bit longer. You can't choose to say, I'll stop the action, but I won't change the heart or the motive behind it. I kind of think of it like, um, like a gym membership, maybe, or a subscription like to a streaming platform. Like Maybe you signed up for like a free trial to something, and then you forgot about it. 
because it ends at 10 days and then your bank account, you slowly wonder, why, do I, why is there $10 going out every single month, right? Or the gym subscription you signed up for, like whatever, four, five, six years ago, and you're like, this is the year I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna start working out. And you still haven't used it to this day, right? Because you have to go all the way back to the gym to cancel it, which is a crazy concept. But we have these these things in our life that maybe were beneficial to us at one point, but then either like we just realize we don't need them anymore or they're not really benefiting us the way we think. And here's the problem is we just let them hang around. Right? You just say it's just 10 bucks a month or I'd forgotten about this or maybe even worse, like if I get rid of this subscription, then what happens if that next show comes out? I gotta watch it. I gotta do a whole other email for that free subscription, right? Like I gotta do all of that work. So we hang on to it. Same with the gym. Like, hey, you know what? I might work out at some point. So I'm going to let my bank account take a hit every single month just in case. And I think that's kind of what happens when we don't truly repent with God. As we say, hey, God, I know I'm struggling, um, you know, with, with loving money or, or, or food or sports or whatever that is, creation. And so I know I need to throw that idol out. It's become unhealthy at this point but I'm just gonna stop doing it. I'll keep it at my disposal just in case. And that's really not truly repenting. Repentance or true repentance isn't just changing our ways. It's, it's changing our hearts. So Israel shows us this example yet again. And I think we have to, we have to recognize that. It's gonna be a theme even throughout the next chapter here. But we end chapter 10 with this this hole, this gap now saying, okay, so Israel, they've done what's right. They've repented. They've turned from their sin. God says, let's, let's figure out what's going on here. And, and they're under oppression yet again. And so there's this opening for a new leader. And we think, okay, Israel's on this uphill slope. They're doing things good. They're following God's word. So what is going to happen next? Let's bring in a mighty warrior, a great judge, and let's fix this problem. And then we see our man Jephthah. So we're finally talking about our judge now, right? I told you, it was gonna be a little bit till we get there. But here we are, chapter 11. It says, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not gonna get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you were the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled the land of Tob where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So we get a little backstory on our guy Jephthah here. And I love this because there's a couple things to note. One is the very first thing we read about him is he's a mighty, he's a mighty warrior. Just like some of the other judges we've talked about. It's the first thing we recognize. And that's who, really that's who Israel needs. They need someone to come in and fight their battles for him. But I'm sure none of us can relate to a dysfunctional family, but he comes from a dysfunctional family. Like, can you imagine this, right? Like, there's no inheritance for him, so his family kicks him out. They say, hey, we don't want any part of you anymore. We're going to abandon you. He has no relationship with his family anymore, and he's kicked out, and he's not a part of anything they're doing. And then even verse 3 is kind of a funny um, little added feature of who, uh, of who Jephthah is, but he goes and runs with these scoundrels. Essentially, like he was kind of like a modern-day mobster back then. He was a gangster like who literally has these followers and these people. He's going and doing these crimes, and he's got these bad people following him around. Like Some commentators even say like maybe he was a pirate in that day, like pursuing that type of a lifestyle. But that's important because that's going to come into play in the next verse here. 
But here's really the big point of this. Once again, through the book of Judges, we see God's going to use someone with a dysfunctional family who's not perfect, who doesn't fit the bill, and is going to say, why don't you be the person to lead? And the best part for us is all of us are an imperfect person with flaws, and God has every opportunity to use you right now as well. So let's see what happens then. We know who Jephthah is, and here's what takes place in verse 4. It says, Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. I love this response. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? You know, it's funny because just a few verses earlier, didn't the Israelites do the same thing to God? Hey, God, we're in trouble. We need you. Can you come get us out of this? And Jephthah, he's being kind of smart here. He's like, ah, you already kicked me out of the family once. It's not going to happen again. Like, I learned my lesson. And so Jephthah, Jephthah literally says to them, uh, he answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I already be your head? This, comes in, this turns into this conversation where Jephthah essentially says, hey, look, fooled me once, okay? I'm not going to fall for this. I'm honored, right, that you think I'm the guy to come in after all my experience now to lead Israel and fight this battle for you. But if I'm going to do this, um, I want to be sure that I'm going to be your leader. And you can't blame him, right? He's literally sitting down saying, I'm going to think through this. I'm going to make sure I'm going to get some insurance on this decision of mine. If I'm going to go lead and fight battles for you, you can't kick me out again. And so Jephthah goes through with this. And then we lead up uh, to verse 12. Okay, so he says, yes, I'm going to fight your battles for you. And here's what happens. Verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, what do you have against me that you have attacked my country? And the king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from, uh, from Arnon to Jabbok all the way to Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. So the next... Man, 15, almost 20 verses is this big, long um, discussion, if you will, that Jephthah has. He actually sends messengers to the king to start talking through what's happening. And a couple things here. One, um, Jephthah is actually being really diplomatic about this, right? Instead of saying, hey, you came into my place and fought my people, like, I'm going to retaliate. He says, you know what? Let's do this peaceably if we can. Let's sit down and talk, which I know we're all good at that, right? Like, hey, let's just not jump to conclusions. Let's, let's sit and talk about it. Like, no, all of us, we struggle with that. So Jephthah here, he's, he's sitting down, he's thinking through, he's being diplomatic, he's being wise about this. James, uh, what is it? James 1, 19 tells us, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So he's, being a, he's, he's starting off his reign as a, as a judge in a great sense. But he comes to the king. He gives him this long message. The argument here, if you didn't pick it up, is everybody, both sides think this is their land, right? It's like a property rights dispute here, okay? And Jephthah says, hey, I'm going to send you this long-winded message that is really well thought out, that explains how this is actually our land, uh, I'm going to give you the history behind it. I'm going to give you the scripture behind it logically. And he says, hey, here's everything. Here's why it's ours. So I just need you to back off. And after this long text, the king basically says, no. 
We're going to engage in war, all right? So Jephthah here is thinking, okay, I did the right thing. I've gone through the processes. Now it's time to go to war. Now it's time to fight for God's people. This maybe is why God brought me into this position in the first place. So then the story takes a turn. And this, if you remember anything from Jephthah, this will be what it is that you remember. Verse 29. As they're preparing to go to war, we see the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. And he crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah and Gilead, and there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hand, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So I got to clarify a few things here because what's easy to misunderstand is we're maybe used to reading the Old Testament, right? And thinking, okay, back then that's what you did, right? You would offer up an animal sacrifice to God. That was how you made peace. Or if you fell into sin or temptation, that's how you made things right. And so Jephthah says, I'm going to do that with whatever comes out my door. And here's a problem with this. Culturally back then, anywhere back then, livestock didn't live in your house. I don't think that's a good idea even now, right? Uh, they didn't have pets or dogs or cats. So what, what Jephthah's doing is he is he's knowingly understanding what I'm saying is when a human being walks out of my house, whoever that is, that's who I'm going to offer up as a sacrifice. It sounds weird to us. It sounds foreign to us. But let's remember, Israel's been under oppression from other gods and other cultures that would literally say, hey, a human sacrifice is a great way to appease the gods, right? To buy favor with them. So his culture right now is influencing his decision. What's even more mind-boggling to me is that if we read verse 29 again, as he starts this battle, the spirit of the Lord is upon him. So he knows, or at least he should know, hey, if God's behind me, nothing can be against me. If I'm going into battle, then I'm going to trust in God. But we'll get to this in just a sec. Is he really trusting him by making this vow? Whatever the vow is, is he really trusting in God? But let's, we'll get to that vow in just a sec, because here's, here's the outcome. So Jephthah, in verses 32 and 33, he goes forward with this. Um, he is victorious. And he comes home in verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrel. So she's walking out the door. She's excited to see her dad. And it says here she was his only child. Man, it's heartbreaking. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, no, my daughter, you have brought me down. And I'm devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. You see, Jephthah probably thought, and this goes into his motives and his character here, he's probably thinking, I'm going to have, he's probably got servants and other people working for him. That'll be who walks out the door. But instead, it's his daughter. It's his only daughter. And we can't even, I can't even ask you to think about what that would be like. It's, it's horrible. And, and Jephthah even... Uh, <laughs> In a way, he almost half blames his daughter when she walks out the door. Did you pick up on that? Like, oh, I can't believe you came out the door. Do you know what you've done to me? We're really starting to see the character of who Jephthah is. The rest of chapter 11 
finishes with this vow being carried out. So he makes a vow and he says, I can't go back on this. What am I supposed to do? And his daughter, I don't even understand this, but his daughter says, well, if you made the vow to God, then you have, let's, you have to carry it out. And they come up with this agreement where he's going to let her live for a few months to go enjoy her life. And then at the end of the passage is where we see that this takes place. And there's, I can't speak 100% confidently to this because there's a couple different views on what takes place here. Some people do say, like a lot of commentators say, he did. He went through with it. He offered his daughter as a human sacrifice to the Lord at the end of those two months. And that's a very possible thing. Other people say, because of some of the information that's shared in the rest of the chapter. Um, those two months, his daughter is allowed to live her life, do her thing, but she lives her life as a virgin and she doesn't have children from there on out. And so some people say, well, maybe what took place was he, he basically gave his daughter to the temple where she would work and would never be able to have children. Either way, it's a pretty bad deal, right? And whatever the outcome is, we see here that Jephthah makes this vow with God. And it leaves me with two big questions, two huge questions to this story that we're probably all asking. One, why? Why did he make this vow? And two, why did he keep this vow? I mean, we've all, we've all made some, some maybe poor promises in our life, right? Some, some dumb decisions in our life, and we're probably willing to say, I'm, never mind, I'm not going to go through with that. If it's your own daughter that's on the stake, don't you think if you're Jephthah, you're thinking, okay, there's got to be another way around this. Like, I'm going to, I'll do what I need to do to make sure this doesn't go through. But he does. So we need to ask those two questions. Why? Why would he make this vow? Like I said, verse 49, we see he's, he's filled with the Spirit. He, he should have this confidence and assurance that God's going to carry through what he's done. He's going to bring victory into his life. But here's what I see, and here's what I would say is the issue with this vow. While Jephthah was a leader and a judge for God's people, it seems to me like he just wanted a little more insurance that he was going to have this victory. He wanted just a little bit more. And the way he found that was through his culture was through what people would do back then, which is to say, hey, why don't you go ahead and offer up a human sacrifice to the gods because that, that, will, that will buy favor. In a sense, he's actually trying to buy God's favor, right? Hey, if this is what people do, then this is what I'll do just to make sure. It was a normal part of culture to make this happen. And so Jephthah says, in, in essence, he says, I'm gonna, he made this vow because he didn't fully trust in God. And this part of the story is heavy, it's hard, it's weird to think that God would use someone to do this. Um, it's weird to think someone would do this in the first place, but here's what I think when I hear this part of the story. Um, we're motivated by culture all the time. It doesn't look like this, but it looks a lot different, and culture still has this way of saying, hey, you can follow God, but why don't you merge your culture a little bit with that and you mix the two. It doesn't really work that way. Culture tells us, you know, if I share my faith at work, I could lose my job um, or people might look at me differently. So I will take that part of culture and I'll take my faith and I'll say, hey, I'll be a Christian here and with the people I know, but when it's time to share, I can't sacrifice my job. I gotta put food on the table, right? Keep my family afloat. 
Maybe to stay financially, we say, hey, I know culturally, like, I need to save money. I want to buy a house. I want to have a good savings account. So when it comes to tithing, I'll just put that into savings because that I can be confident of. That's culture and faith mixing. It doesn't work. We, we are told in culture, like, you can do what makes you happy, whatever that is. Whatever that pleasure, whatever that joy is, you do what's happy and God wants you to be happy, right? No, like, of course God wants you to be happy, but not if it's in opposition to him. You know, it's a nice weekend in Bend, Oregon. Uh, I'm just gonna go worship God in creation, right? Because culture says, like, I'm gonna take advantage of a great opportunity and a great weekend. So I will worship God in creation. Let me tell you, I'm an outdoor person too. Um, it's great to have those intentions. It doesn't always happen, right? And we fall into this form of idolatry yet again. And Jephthah, in this instance, says, I'm going to let the culture around me dictate how I make this decision. So here's my question. Is your culture guiding your faith decisions right now? Your work culture, your family life, whatever it is that surrounds you that's not here in church, maybe even this culture can define and lead you astray at times. But is it guiding your faith decisions. I think that's why Jephthah made this vow, as he said, God, I don't trust you enough, so that means I'll turn to culture. That will make me feel good about what I'm doing. So why does he go through with it? <laughs> maybe we're thinking through that, right? Why would you go through with this? Initially, maybe we would say to ourselves, hey, you know, like God, or Jephthah made this vow with God, so he can't go against that. Like he made that word, so he's gotta go through with it. But here's the problem with this. Um, it's not entirely true. In, in Leviticus 5 and other places in Scripture, we actually see like part of the law that Jephthah was a part of was, hey, if, if you make any vow that leads to sin or opposition to what God might say, then that vow is not binding. I can tell you this, um, God does not accept human sacrifice. And so we know, and Jephthah would have known, he could have stepped back and said, God, can we talk about this? <laughs> I made a mistake. Can we work something out? And here's why I think he doesn't go back on it. Again, this is one way to look at this text, but here's what I really feel like Jephthah's going through is, hey, I would rather not admit my failure and my sin and just play this off as I gotta do it. Or I would rather not humiliate, I would rather save myself from the humiliation of telling people I made a mistake and then just push this under the rug. Don't we do that with sin all the time? <laughs> don't, don't we experience moments in our life where we, where we realize, hey, I did something wrong, and I would rather not bring that to God and say, God, I'm sorry. Instead, I'll try to just make it something less than it really is. Or I'll try to be so confident in it that no one can really question it. This word, this issue, uh, is a word called humility. <laughs> And it's something that is required of us as Christians to come to God and say, God, I made a mistake. Can we, what can we do about this? I can only picture God just waiting so desperately for Jephthah to come to him and say, God, I'm so sorry. I realized what I did. I shouldn't have made this vow. I should have trusted you, but he doesn't. And therefore falls into deeper sin. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So Jephthah's story actually continues in chapter 12. We won't get into that this morning, but he doesn't end well, I'll just tell you that. 
But this is, this is the pinnacle of his story. This is the issue that we have with Jephthah. This is the problem. And so how do we learn from this, right? What do we pull away from this? What's interesting to me is, um, if you've ever read through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11 is called the chapter of faith. It's got all these heroes of faith, people like Abraham and Rahab. And you know who's listed in this? Jephthah. As a hero of faith. <laughs> the guy who just made an offering up to God, or at least vowed to make this offering of his own daughter, is somehow labeled as a hero of faith. And so what that tells me is there's something in his story that we can learn from. I think Jephthah teaches us two lessons in one, where he doesn't practice humility by coming to God and saying, God, this is wrong. But he also tells us, if I make a promise to God, I need to keep it. Now, we have to be careful here, right? Because he can't go through with this promise because it's not honoring God. But how many times have we made a much smaller promise to God, like, God, I promise I'll do this if you give me this, and we don't fall through with it? That's not faith. Jephthah teaches us a couple things, and I'll show you these three things um, before we, we get into, we're going to do communion and, and kind of wrap things up here. But here's, here's what we can pull from this. One is we have to be careful with our words. Right? No kidding. Reading this story, can you imagine how many times Jephthah's like, I wish I would have just <laughs> said that differently. And we're not, maybe we don't even talk about vows for a second, but like, I wish I just would have not said that to that person. I wish I would have held my, held my tongue and not spoken without thinking. James 3 tells us the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. We can relate to that, right? We have to be careful with what we say, and we have to choose wisely our promises. God's a just God. Right? He, he wants to carry those things out if they're honoring to him. So choose your words wisely. The second thing is to recognize how culture motivates you. Is there anything in this passage that I think I pull out? It's this. Culture has a great way of giving us uh, what I would call like a blind spot in our faith, where we don't even realize, hey, because culture's got such a big influence on me, I'm not really dedicating time to scripture because I don't need to. Like, I've got videos I can watch. I've got church I go to. Culture has this way of putting these blind spots in us, and if we let culture motivate us, it just puts this wedge even farther between us and God. So Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, meaning turn to God for that guidance. Stop trying to let culture dictate what you do. Finally, this is, I think, where Jephthah fell short here. It's okay to accept God's grace. Like, here's the best part of every, every story in Judges is every single judge reminds us, man, we're messed up people, we have problems. <laughs> and Jephthah's trying to buy God's favor. Right? He's trying to live based off works right now. He's trying to say, the only way I can fix this is if I do this. He doesn't have the ability to save himself. Instead, he needs to take this gift that God's given him. He needs to accept it. He needs to make that choice and say, you know what? I can try all I want to try and fix this myself, but what if I just admitted my sin and accepted God's grace? Ephesians 2 says it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Here's what this comes down to this morning. Jephthah, uh, we can all agree, made a pretty big mistake here, right? Flawed man. 
and he maybe failed to turn to God at the end of his life, and so are you letting God shape and form you through your failures? Or are you trying to say, I would rather soften the blow by (laughs) shoving this under the rug, not bringing this up to God, letting culture dictate what I do and how I can feel better about myself. It's easy to want to control our outcomes. Uh, It's easy for culture to give us confidence over faith, and it's easy for us to want to earn God's favor, but man, that's the beauty of who he is. As he says, I know you've made a mistake. Just come to me. We can work this out. I want to show you forgiveness and love. Um, I'm going to read one passage and we'll have the band come out and we're going, to do, we're going to end with communion today. But Ephesians wraps this up in a really nice way. It says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That's our idolatry. And to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put off or to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The story of Jephthah shows us that through our failures, God has already taken care of those for us. We don't need to try and earn his favor. We don't need to turn to culture or some other method to try and feel better about ourselves. Ultimately, we need God. We need that relationship with him. So as we sing this last song, we'll do communion in a sec. Just keep the elements by your side for now. Just ask yourself, where do you feel like you've fallen short and how can you give that over to God today? Let me pray for us and we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we love you, we thank you, and we ask that even a story like a flawed man such as Jephthah can teach us the value of humbly coming to you, saying, God, I've, I've failed, <laughs> And as much as I want to try and fix this, I can't. I just want to accept your grace, God. We love you. Let us feel that grace even today, God. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Will you please stand with us for this last?